Welcome to the Simple Gospel Church Podcast. Raising a generation that will stand for Christ. This is the first understanding scripture of the year 2024. A new season has started. Um, and our first, our first um, discussion, we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. So all through this month, we're going to be looking at single chapter books of the Bible. So we're starting off with Jude. And as I already said, it's a one, one chapter book, so, uh, about 27 verses. They're about, and that, that's it. But uh, it's a very fascinating book that we can talk about. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jude, chapter 1 from verse 1 to the end, because that's all there is. Jude is the penultimate book of the Bible. It's just before Revelation. Let's read. It says, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of, J- brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, I write... While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, while he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These, these are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the, by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who will walk according to their ungodly lusts. Let's stop there. So, this um, teaching is going to be divided into two. We're going to look at the sections today and then we'll look at the rest of it next week when we meet once again by God's special grace. So, the book of Jude. Um, does, can anyone give us a background on who Jude was? All right. Jude is the brother of Jesus. Yes. And as we know in the Bible, um, James and Jude, hmm. two brothers, were um, they were one of the main people that, even though it, it wasn't really, really said, but in the Bible, they were one of the people that did not really believe in the ministry of, of Jesus or did not believe that Jesus was actually the Savior. Kind of felt like there was some family feud going on internally uh, with them against Jesus. Um, but, of course, seeing all the things that they did, um, it, is, it is believed, at least in Christian tradition, that um, James and Jude were one of the major um, uh, forerunners um, after Jesus had already um, gone to heaven. And, of course, that is also present in the two books, in the book of James and the book of Jude, um, which we just read, um, how there was a change or an impact in what uh, Jesus, uh, what happened to Jesus and how that changed their perspectives into becoming servants of Jesus Christ. So, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. So, that was a good explanation. Jude was indeed the brother of Jesus. Yes, they did not believe in his earthly ministry because in the book of John, we are told that they were even the ones that were, you know, kind of almost in a mocking way, saying, ah, you're not going to go to Jerusalem. Go and show yourself now. But yeah, and Jesus was like, I'm not, I'm not going, <laughs> you know, because he wasn't going to rise to whatever bait that they were trying to put in front of him. And um, he was mentioned in the Gospels, when they said that he's not his brother Judas, so he's, he's Judas, that's one of his, that's his name, shortened into Jude. So, he is the, he was the brother of Jesus, and one of the things, and of course he changed, as you can see, the fact that he wrote this book, is clear that he was no longer against Jesus. So, the Bible tells us in the book of um, First Corinthians, when Paul talked about the people that Jesus appeared to, said that he appeared also to James. Um, that James too was appeared to. That's James the brother of Jesus, not James the disciple. And so, there's the whole family history going on here. But I want us to notice something in verse 1. Can we look at verse 1 for a second? It says, Jude, a born servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, Jude, a born servant of Jesus and the brother of James. A remarkable thing, don't you think? I mean, I don't know about you, but if 
if my brother was two-faced Dibia or something, or some other celebrity that everyone knew and everyone loved or something, I mean, I'll be quick to say, I'll be like, Femi, the brother of, <laughs> you know, the brother of so-and-so is me. Uh-huh, I'm the one talking to you guys so that all of you would, you know, listen. You know, you guys have to, you have to pay attention, you know, because that's how these things happen sometimes. We, we, we use the clout of the people around us. So if, you're, if your father is a big man, you, do you know who my father is? Uh, you come in, you say something like that. Oh, I am Kenny, the son of... That's the entire idea. But Jude did not do that. Instead, he identified himself first as a born servant of Jesus and then brother to James. Like, he didn't, he didn't say brother of James. <laughs> brother to James. Now, Tokyo, the James that wrote the book of James, I'm his brother. And from there, we can identify that, okay, this person is actually Jesus' brother. But he never identified himself as that. that and that's a remarkable thing. It's a thing of, it shows great humility that he did not consider himself equal. And that's one of the clearest indications of one of the themes that we find in the book of Jude, which is the godhood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is indeed God. He recognized that very well. And so he called himself a bond servant. I am a servant to this Jesus Christ. I am the brother of James. And something that we could use a lot even in our Christian faith, whereby we are related, we are related to Jesus too. We're related to him. We're children of God. We're brothers to Jesus because Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. So we're brothers too. But then we cannot take any, we cannot take any pride in it. We cannot take anything in it. Like that, that does not elevate us above other people. We are born servants too. I almost recognize that. As believers, we are born servants. Because that is what enables us to lead. The Bible tells us that the, the first is going to be the last and the last the first. Anyone who is going to lead will have to serve. And therefore, we must recognize that in our endeavors as believers, we must see ourselves first as born servants of Jesus Christ. Before any other thing that we may want to tack onto it. That's not always easy because in the in life, the world, the way the world has been structured is a world that recognizes achievements, personal achievements. So, you know, you get a PhD, you become you're called a doctor. Right? Like you get a PhD, you're called a doctor. You you study law, you read law, you go to law school, you're called barrister. You've been called to bar. You're now barrister, this and that, and so on and so forth. And we place such attachments to these things. You know, there are some people that if you don't call them chief, you're in problem. I mean, I can't, I, I'm, I'm very close to someone like that. <laughs> I'm very, very close to someone like that. If you don't put chief in his name, ah, there's a problem. What are you on about? I am saying, you just want to call him mister. Are you all right? What are you talking about? No. But we have to throw all of that away because there's nothing. Nothing in the grand scheme of things. But let's move on. It says, um, it says to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So that's also something of great importance because it, it lists three things there, right? So wh what are those things? It says, 
Okay, so we're called, we're sanctified, we're preserved. Okay, so the King James Version has it as um, sanctified, preserved, and called. The CSB has it as loved, uh, loved, sanctified, and preserved. Uh, and no, and kept in Jesus Christ. But you see, these three things are quite important for the saints. Um, see, we are, we, are, we are just talking on verse 1, just the intro. Because you see, a lot of times when we read the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> we, d we, we don't usually pay attention to the introduction. You know, we kind of read the first verse. When they say, Paul, it is this, 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 this. Beg, let's go to the, uh -huh. I, I, I am writing to you because, uh -huh. this is where the letter starts. So, you know, because even from this, we learn quite a bit. Because it tells us this. It says to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So it tells us the nature of the saint. Because those are the people he's writing to. He's not writing to the whole world. He's not writing to unbelievers. No, he's writing to believers. And so, the believer is three things. The believer is sanctified. The believer is preserved. The believer is called. And those three things are of great importance. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Essentially set apart. I set apart for God, right? That's when we talk about sanctification, that's what we are talking about. Okay. Says we are preserved and it says we are called. So the analogy I like to use for this is putting something in the fridge. Essentially. So you if you have if you make a pot of soup or whatever as the case may be, you know that. If you go to bed and you wake up tomorrow, you don't warm it up. You just leave it there and everything. Something happens to it. If you decide to put your spoon and have a taste of it, you might feel a certain sensation. And that sensation might not be pleasant. Because suddenly, and then you, you'll either go and throw up or you, and you d or you smack your lips. Or whatever the case may be that you do. And that's because something has happened to said pot of soup. But then... You now put it inside the freezer. And when you put it inside the freezer, you know that even if it's there for... So, my brother had this... He had this practice in the... In some of these other countries. In Nigeria now, if you want to buy milk, you buy either your condensed milk or you buy a sachet or you buy powdered or whatever as the case may be. But in some European countries, what they usually have is like a jug of milk, like actual normal jug. And so usually what happens is that they, when you go to the shops and you want to buy it, there's usually an expiration date already there. And it's usually a week, give or take. So they say, okay, consume this thing within a week. If you don't consume it within a week, there's a problem. Like whatever, you, whatever happens to you after that, don't call us. But my brother being a Nigerian, cannot say that he's going to simply just buy, you know, one and then be keeping it and the next you have, have to buy another one why no no you buy in bulk so he buys in bulk and you're like okay so what's your plan but you see he has this refrigerator in his shed that is constantly on and it's incredibly cold and so when he buys in bulk he now carries all the milk and he places it there and he closes it up and that shed they only come to pick stuff from it like that they've forgotten for ages and you would sometimes go in and you open and you'd find a bottle of milk that is a year old, a year and a half old. And it's perfectly fine. 
because it's frozen to death. <laughs> so it's frozen and nothing can get into it. And therefore, by the time you bring it out and it thaws, and you can, it's normal. I didn't believe it until I tried it. Right? I looked and said, but this thing is a year old. And I said, don't worry, let it thaw. And I, and I let it thaw and I poured it and I drank it. And I, oh, this, this is fine. Huh? Yeah, it's frozen. So that's what happens when you preserve stuff, right? And then you can use it whenever. I mean, you've heard, if you've read any science fiction, you'll have read about cryogenics, you know, how they want to freeze people. And, and it works. It works. There are many, um, some of these uh, remains of old Egyptian people and everything, you find them almost perfect, perfectly preserved. Why? Because of cold temperature. That's what cold does. It preserves stuff. Anyways. But... The we have the same analogy when we talk about the Christian faith. That the same thing is since it's sanctified. So but before you keep your thing inside the fridge, whatever is veg maybe it's a vegetable or something, you you'd wash it first. Right? I mean you won't buy pepper and then bring it and just toss it into the refrigerator. No, you'd wash it first. If you've not blended or grounded it or whatever, you'd wash it first, right? And then you keep it inside the fridge. And then after you keep it inside the fridge, it's there to be used whenever you want to call upon it. And that's how we look at this too. Because God the Father washes us. So as a believer, we are sanctified and we are set apart for him. He's the one that does that. Then we are, san uh, then we are preserved. And then when we are preserved, we are there. Meaning that if we talk about preservation, that means that there has to be an idea of perishing. Right? I mean, if, if there will be no need to preserve something if, it wasn't, if there wasn't a danger of it becoming spoilt, right? So when we say we want to preserve books and, you know, um, they will put the book inside a specific kind of light and everyone that wants to open it has to wear gloves and all of those things. And the idea is that you are preserving the book. Why? Because there's, there's a chance that it can spoil. So... If we're being preserved, then that means what? What does that mean? There's a chance that we can spoil. There's a chance that we can perish. And then we are called. And so we have this for the believer. But how are we preserved? It says it here. It says, preserved in Jesus Christ. We are preserved in Jesus Christ. What does that mean to be preserved in Jesus Christ? What do you think it means? Who wants to answer for us? Who wants to answer for us? Who? Oh, okay. And give Sister Joe then. Give Sister Joe. Um, sorry, your question is, what does it mean? What does it mean to, to be preserved, preserved in Well, using the analogy you gave of a refrigerator, um, I can, or we can say that anything outside a refrigerator will spoil. So, I'm not saying Jesus is a refrigerator, but in this context. But if he is in the context, then he yes, is in the context. Yes, like, if we are in him, we have to remain, like if we are kept in him or if we are in him to be preserved from contamination, from spoilage and all. It means that 
anything outside him. The moment we are, the moment anybody rather than we decides to come out of him, knowingly or unknowingly, you will, you know, start to wither and rest of the destruction phase will occur. Okay. So okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Does anyone else want to give that a whirl? Cooper? Uh, you took the mic. Huh? I think the, en the entire idea of preservation is to... Oh, so what it means essentially to be preserved in Christ is to be um is to be in a place of being a place of rest mm. because like you use the analogy of of the milk the milk is in a place of rest until it is supposedly called into action uh so to say so being preserved puts us in a place of uh puts uh, puts us out of harm's way essentially knowing that um, the refrigerator being Christ in this case is covering us uh, and we are resting in him and we are performing the things that we are called to do in him because the one supposed one week old milk cannot essentially do what it is called after two weeks if it is not in the refrigerator so being preserved in Christ means that we are in his refrigerator. We are protected in his refrigerator. And we can then act out or do those things that we are called to do while still being within um, his refrigerator. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. That's a good answer. So let's look at uh, John 17, chapter 11, um, verse 11, not chapter 11. Chapter 17, verse 11. Um, here, Jesus was praying for, Jesus said a prayer. And we're going to be looking at John 17 for a lot of the evening services. But let's just um, have a look at it here. Jesus prayed a prayer for his disciples. It says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So, what's clear to us here is that if we are to be preserved, it has to be in Christ Jesus. It has to be in him. We cannot be preserved outside of him. But, like, we then have to ask ourselves the question, like, okay, when we've said how, uh, we said what does it mean to be preserved, but then how does that happen? How are we preserved? What has happened that has enabled us to now be preserved? And for that, I want us to look at John chapter 10, verse 28. The Bible says, it says, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone out of my hand. Amen. That is in John chapter 10 when Jesus was speaking of himself as the good shepherd. So he says here, he says that I'll give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Right? So what 
we, we talked about it a second ago. We said that when, when one is not being preserved, then one does what? Perishes, right? Okay, so that means for that perishing not to happen, we have to receive something. And what we receive for that is eternal life. And it is that eternal life that makes it possible for us not to perish. Because you see, when you put something into the refrigerator, into the freezer, something has to happen to it that enables it to be preserved, right? It's not like when you put it, it's not the same as when you put it in a cupboard. Because when you put it in a cupboard, it's the same exact state. And then you bring it out and whatever the case may happen. And if you keep something in a cupboard, like the thing, all the, the spoiling that can spoil normally will still come to it. But when you put it in a refrigerator, something happens. There's a process of freezing that then enables it to not spoil. And for the sake of this particular analogy, that freezing is eternal life because it is what keeps us. So, what makes it possible for you not to spoil is the eternal life that has been given to you by Christ Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross. But then, as we've already looked at in the analogy, it says that no one can snatch them out of his hand. So, no one can snatch you. As a believer, as you're in Christ, nobody can snatch you out. It's not possible. But, you can come out on your own. And then, when you step out of Jesus... You step out of eternal life. Because we must recognize that in him is life. That's what the Bible tells us, right? In him is life. So it is in Jesus Christ that the eternal life exists. Meaning that if we are not in him, we cannot have the eternal life. Just as if you are not in the refrigerator, the effects of freezing cannot happen to you. Do we understand so, we cannot be snatched out, but we can be lured out. But then that takes a person's will. That takes a person's will. So, it's a, it's a comfort for the believer to know that as I'm in the hand of Christ too, nobody can drag you out. Nobody can drag you out of divine. It's not possible. You can't. You can't. If there's a perishing to happen, it will be because of the choices that were made by the individual. Satan knows he can't drag you out. He knows that very well. That's why he tries to lure. That's why he tempts, he deceives, he tricks. He does all of those things to lure you out. If you read, you know, or if you, if you follow any um, fantastical stories or mythological stories or whatever as the case may be. One of the one of the myths about vampires is that you know they can't enter into a place uninvited. Right? You've probably heard that before. So they'll stand outside your window and say, oh, "Come, come," because they want you to come out, to come and meet them. Because that's where they can deal with you. Because when you see, Jesus said, he said that um, 
they are in the world, right? That's in that um, John 17 that we read. Say they are in the world. I'm, I'm leaving the world. So it's when we step into that world with them, then that's when we lose our protection, we lose our eternal life. Okay. Okay. So let's continue from there. Says uh, verse two. Ah, verse one. Hey, name. Verse one. Okay. Verse two. Says, um, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Okay, so I'll, I'll go over this quickly then. Mercy, peace, and love. And we should recognize that Jude was asking for it to be multiplied to the believer. He didn't say just give them, he said multiply it. And what that shows us is how much we need it. We need God's mercy, we need His peace. And we need love. It says multiply it. Funny enough, this is not the only place that it was said. Even the book of um, First Peter, verse, um, verse 1 also says it in the book of First Peter, or Second Peter. It says it to multiply it to them. So it shows that need for God's mercy in our lives. We cannot live this life without God's mercy. There's a reason why in Psalm 23 at the end it says that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Or pursue me, so as some people like to render it. Let's be chasing me up and down. But we need God's mercy in our lives as believers. So he's asking for it to multiply to us. But okay, let's move on. Verse 3 says that, Beloved, I write very diligently, or I was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So here, it's a very interesting situation because Jude, this was not Jude's plan. <laughs> right? He says it here, like, this was not my plan. I was going to write to you about the common salvation. Like, my plan was to write to you and say, ah, well, we're all in Christ together. Jesus saved all of us. We share Jesus as a common root. And from him, we are, we are grown up and everything. That's what, that was his plan. But something happened. So someone was like, yeah... I have to I have to change and write to you instead that there's something we have to deal with. It says to contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. Verse 4. It says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what he's telling us here is that I was going to write to you about our common salvation, but then we realized that some men have been creeping in to do certain things. They've been marked for condemnation, and they've turned the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This was false teaching. False teaching is the great enemy of the faith. And it has been the great enemy of the faith from the very start, from the very beginning. It says, who turned the grace of God into lewdness? Some versions say sensuality. And that means, essentially, the grace of God has been turned into something else, into something carnal. And there's a denial of Jesus Christ. And if you look around the world today, won't you agree that that's, that's true? That people have turned the grace of God into a, into a thing of lewdness. 
something that is carnal. You hear people, and we saw examples of them in the book of Romans, where it says that, well, if I, if I sin more, then more grace is multiplied to me, right? If you remember that passage in the book of Romans. And today we have such movements. Um, I've heard people talk about something called free grace, whereby the idea is that you've been washed in the blood, so anything goes, feel free, do whatever. And these people will tell you, oh, Bible believing, yeah, I believe the Bible, everything and everything. And there are people who deny the Lord Jesus Christ in different ways. In different ways. You know, the most, the most contentious thing about this gospel, the most contentious thing about this gospel is the identity of Jesus as God. The identity of Jesus is a problem for so many people around the world. And at the root of any heresy, any heresy, any heresy, think of whatever heresy it is, at the root of it is the identity of Jesus. A miss or a grotesque identity to Jesus Christ. So there's something called adoptionism, which will tell you that um, Jesus was a man until he was baptized, and then that's when God chose him to be his son. There are those who will tell you that um, Jesus was fully God, but he was not a man. Um, there are some that will tell you that Jesus was essentially a normal man for all intents and purposes. There was nothing godly about him. Um, and that, you know, he's just this great teacher that all of us have to follow. Or all of us should learn from. And so on and so forth. There are so many. But it's always this identity of Jesus Christ. So what people have a problem with. But then, in the, in the preceding verse, it tells us to contend for the... What does it mean to contend? What does it mean to contend? Talk away. When you say contend for the faith, what um, I know contending is more of a... Should I say competition or a fight? Competition or fight. Okay. It's certainly not a competition because we're not competing. <laughs> but a fight, yes. Fight. Definitely. Definitely a fight. But how do we fight for the faith? How do we do so? Do we, do we embark on a crusade? Do we embark on a jihad? No. Then how do we fight? What do we do? Because you know, right, it says content for the faith, meaning there's something we must do, right? It's, it's, a, it's a mandate. To contend for the or, or do any of us agree with the idea of contending for the faith? We should not contend for the faith. So let's let's see your hands. No, no more cow. Just accept that. Okay, that's that. But then, how are we supposed to do it? How? Um. So, the way I understand it is, it's a very active thing. Mm. Um, so that means uh, being in a position where at every given opportunity we are disarming any form of lewdness or false teaching okay. and doing it while acting in, in love and correction so that those who have been exposed to such teachings uh, would have the opportunity to um, 
to be saved, mm. essentially, from those false teachings. Okay. But doing it um, also because it's very easy to look at this and say, okay, we are doing it with our power. We are doing it with our strength. And there might be misalignment with that. Because some might look at this and say, okay, if I'm contending, it means I'm going to fight somebody when they say that Jesus is not God. So, essentially, allowing the Holy Spirit to give us the authority to speak the truth to those who need to hear it so that that false teaching that was once believed is disarmed once and for all. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. So, um, clearly... If I was content for the faith, it's we're not being called to fight a jihad. Definitely not. Um, but we are called to defend the faith. How do we do this? Um, the Bible tells us in the book of First Timothy, chapter six, verse twelve, it says, "Fight the good fight, fight the good fight of faith." That's what um, Paul said to Timothy. And in Second Timothy, chapter four, he sa- he had a similar conversation with him. Um, if we turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 tells us that he has fought the good fight, he has won the race, he has kept the faith, was what he said. But before that, if we look at verse 3, I believe, um, say something, verse 2 then. Okay. So it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Three things it says here. It says, convince, rebuke, exhort. Some versions render convince as correct. Correct, rebuke, exhort. Or reprove, as the King James puts it. So reprove, um, reprove, correct, exhort. And those are three of the ways in which you contend for the faith. The fourth one is a different way, which is we have to live in obedience. Because it's not enough for us to speak. Our lives also have to have that same thing. What does it mean to correct? It's self-explanatory, essentially. We have a responsibility to set people right when they have the wrong doctrine. To rebuke. We have a right to rebuke people when they are being mischievous. Because there are some people who are being mischievous. That's a fact. And we have to rebuke them by the word. And we have to also encourage people with that word. It's the way we contend for the faith. Because you see, you might say now that, hey, but the Bible says that the Lord will fight for you and you hold your peace. Or, you know, God can fight for himself. Why am I, why am I defending? And the reality is this. When, when we say contend for the faith, as Brother Cooper said, and I already mentioned, it's not, it's not a call to arms. It's not a call for us to go and kill another individual or to start or start a shouting match with anybody just because the, maybe the person told you that Jesus is not the son of God. You now say, ah, what do you mean? What do you mean? We are, we throw hands, or our shirts, or whatever is the case may be, or whatever it is they call us nowadays. But we are to correct these people. Um, there was a viral interview a couple of days ago with a comedian called Cat Williams. That um, Pastor Bill was talking about it yesterday. I finally got to watch a chunk of the interview. And very fascinating thing. But he said one thing, though, that stuck. He said, winners should never allow losers to rewrite history. And I was like, okay, 
fair, fair point. And that's the thing about the faith, yeah? If anyone wants to reject the salvation of Jesus Christ, you want to reject Christ, you say, this Christianity thing is not for me. At the very least, reject the actual gospel. Reject the actual gospel. That's it. Because we're not called to change people's minds. We're not called to fight people that you must believe what I'm saying. No. We're called to witness that this is the true gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one that does the convicting. Because what you would find out is that a lot of people reject this gospel based on lies. All around us, they reject the gospel based on a lie. Because they don't know what the gospel is. If you ask them what's the gospel, they don't know. They'll say, Jesus came, okay? So what happened? What did he do? What was the idea? He came and he died. Why did he die? For our sins. Why do we have sin? A lot of people can't answer those questions. And so, if you ask someone today, what's your problem with Christianity? Or why have you not accepted Jesus Christ? Ah, well, God is mean. Or if God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Or if this is the case, why is this? Why is this, this, why is this? And then there is no proper understanding of what the gospel is. And as a believer, we have a responsibility to show them that this is what the gospel is. So the death, is is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he is coming again. And so we must correct false teachings. Because it kills people. Bad theology kills. False teaching kills. Kills people. We have to rebuke people. So that means that if, if a lie of the gospel is being spread around us, or is being said around us, we sh- cannot sit back and say, God will fight his battles. No. We must get in there and say something. Not fight. Not argue. Because Paul said to Timothy, he said, get away from pointless arguments about mythologies and so on and so forth. No, you're not here to fight about, oh, this, this, this. You're not here to fight about whether the Dead Scrolls were found or the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1945 or 1954. No. You're here to correct people who are telling people lies. And we have to rebuke and we have to encourage. And we are also to live a godly life. Because if we do not live a life of obedience, then everything we say is for naught. What's the use? What's, what, um, what value can you place in the life of someone who doesn't do any of the things that they say is supposed to be the truth? Because our lives, our lives is also a means of contending for the gospel. Paul said, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith. Trust me, part of that was living the Christian life. Because, make no mistake, the world knows what is supposed to look, what is supposed to be right. They know what righteousness looks like. Like, they have an idea that, okay, this is what's supposed to be. A person is supposed to live a certain way. That's why, you know, you know somebody tell you that, oh, I'm not religious, but aren't Christians supposed to... Have you heard such a statement before? I've heard a statement. Uh, recently on social media, there was a there was a buzz about some a pastor who um, got into a a bit of road rage, you know. So I think he busted his car, according to the story, and that he came down and he was upset, and then he broke the 
windscreen of the bus or he broke a mirror or something interesting like that, Sha. Even with the passengers in and he was shouting, I was very upset and then went into his car and drove off and people were scared and everything and I saw a little video afterwards of people, you know, shouting, demonstrating, remonstrating, all of that. And one of the things someone said is that, hey, is it, is it not supposed to? They know. They know. And someone would not live lives that give glory to God. Then we're not fighting. We're not fighting. We have, to, we have to speak, yes. But we must also live it. Put our money where our mouth is. Or put our works where our mouth is, shall I say. So, let's, um, let's continue. Time is fast spent, so I'm guessing we're almost at the end. Um, so, verse, what verse are we in? Verse four, okay, verse five. So I think we'll do verse let's do verse five to verse eight. Okay. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord has saved people out of. Okay, we've already read this before. I don't want to take the time to read everything again. But the next thing that we see Jude do is I said earlier, I said that Jude seemed to have this book has a very high Christology or like something that they call so that essentially the idea of Jesus being God and it's here it says but I remind you once that the Lord saved people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe you see he uses the word the Lord I want Lord it's um it's a Greek word it's a curious it's Jesus Jesus and some some versions just say straight up say Jesus CSB does it NLT does it a couple of other places just say Jesus and that points to the fact that Jesus is God. Because who do we know that led people out of the land of Egypt? So, there are two things to pick from here. The first is this. Jesus was very involved. He was very involved in the Old Testament because he is God. Not just as the one who led them out, but how were they led out? They were led out through Moses, yes, but... Because through the power of the Passover lamb, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's a representation of the Passover lamb. Because what it was the final judgment that was enacted on the people of Egypt before they walked out. And the, the Israelites, if you look, um, if you were to read Exodus chapter 15, uh, no, Exodus chapter 12, I'm sorry, is what talks about it. Where it talks about the Passover lamb, how they were to consume it whole. And we're to get ready to leave and splatter the blood on their doorposts. And so when the angel of death passes by, you'll pass over them. So Jesus was that Passover lamb. And it was through that action, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, that um, Pharaoh released them. Jesus has released us from the bonds of sin through his blood. It is from that Passover lamb, by that blood, that we are able to come out of our own Egypt, which is, a, which is the world. It's a representation of the world and the world of sin. And it is by that Passover lamb that we are able to come out. But you see the same Jesus. You know, there's something I like to say. Jesus is not the nicer God. Because some people have this idea. Oh, the God of the Old Testament. 
this horrible, horrendous, very angry individual got very upset quite a bit. We know we stand before he swallows a bunch of people up. But you see this Jesus that came in the New Testament, this cool dude, really nice, very chill. Me, me and Jesus were homies. You know, Jesus is my homie, is my buddy. To a large extent, he is. What a friend we have in Jesus, right? He's a friend. Yes. But you see, Jesus is dangerous. There's a song lyric I like. So you're a good, um, he's a good God, he's not safe. Because yeah? Jesus is dangerous. Because Jesus killed those who do not believe. Snakes bit the children of Israel. And so they looked up. And Jesus talked about it. He said that just as Moses lifted up the snake, the staff with the snakes, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. Those who look unto him will be saved. But he's the one that is also enacting judgment. He will enact judgment. He's the one that can save from it, from the coming judgment, because it is indeed coming. And he talked about three scenarios here. He talked about the people of Egypt. Um, the next verse. Talked about the people of Egypt who were destroyed, or people from Egypt, said, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of the great day. And verse 7, it says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jesus is a judge. He will judge, he will kill, he will do anything. Because he's a righteous judge, he has every right to do so. He's not doing it as a tyrant, as a tyrant, or as, as some weird maniac. No. He's doing it because he has the authority to do so. And when he says the angels who did not keep their proper position, he's talking about the fallen angels. Those are the angels that fell from heaven, who are now in chains. There are several of in angels that are in chains, or several of these demons that are in chains. So if you think it's bad now. You can consider what it will be like after Jesus comes to take his own people. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelations, I don't know if it's chapter 5 or when it talks about the release of a demon called Apollyon or Ab Abaddon. Abaddon, also called Apollyon, as the name, as the case may be. And he says that what the people fr with him there also now come out. So we have demons now. There are demons roaming about doing all of their plays and things. But see, some of these angels, too, these angels were judged. They did not keep their proper place. But that's also a lesson for us. Because we too, we are, we are a type of angel in that we have a place. Because these angels served before God. They served before the Father. They too were in the heavenly places. But they lost their place. So they did not keep their proper domain. They did not stay where they were supposed to stay. They did not stay in their lane, so to speak. And then they decided to come out. But then they are being kept in chains until the day of final judgment. I talked about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's look at verse 8. Which says, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Verse 10. 
But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in error of Balaam for prophets, and perished in rebellion of Korah. So, he seems to be talking about people in, in sets of threes, shall I say. So, we have those who did not, who died in the wilderness, who did not keep their proper place, and who went after strange flesh. And then, he compared these people, these false prophets, to those people. And he said, they've gone the way of Cain, they followed after the steps of Balaam for prophets, and have also taken in the rebellion of Korah. These three people existed in the Old Testament, and all for various things. Cain, we know his story. He killed his brother Abel, and God punished him. Balaam, if you remember, was the was the scam artist that was hired by Balak or Balak, as they want to call him, to curse the Israelites. But instead, he blessed them because he couldn't curse them. But wh why did he do it? Is it for profit? And he talked about Korah, who raised up men, who raised up the people, the children of Israel, to speak against Moses in the wilderness. That's what these false teachers do. And why we must fight against them. They're like Cain, in the sense that they would kill their supposed brothers. Because there are people who infiltrate. They don't do it from outside. They do it from the inside. Because it says that men have crept in Meaning that they've come inside. And so they've come inside and then they've taken their so-called brothers out into the field to kill them. That's what they do. They're like uh, Balaam who cursed or who wanted to curse the children of Israel. For what? For profit. There are many people who are also laying curses left, right, and center. For profit. Speaking what they should not speak. For profit. And there are people who are raising others in rebellion to speak against men of God. And there are so many people, they are so, they are so irreverent when they do it. This man of God says, he's this, 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 he's that, 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 he's this, 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 that, 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 that. I don't have called him. But they will speak and they do it because they are irreverent. But their end is coming. Because he made a contrast. He said that even Michael, and he, the, he's talking about the apocryphal book known as the Assumption of Moses. But he said that even Michael, when he was contending for the body of Moses, like even though you would say he had the right to speak against the devil, right? He said he didn't even do that. He said God rebuke you instead. But meanwhile, you, that you're not even up, like you're not there, you're just speaking against Speaking against men of God, people of God, just flippantly. Taking this gospel thing flippantly. Killing children of God by pulling them out or not pulling them out or deceiving them to come out of their place of protection where they are being kept in Christ Jesus. Deceiving them to come outside. You think such people are going to be okay? Do you know how precious you are to God? Do you know what it means? For someone to take what is most precious to you and then corrupt it? Will you take it easy on such a person? If someone took the thing you loved most in this world and defiled it, you think such a person is getting off easy? It's not though. They are not. 
And neither are these ones. The lesson for us to pick from there. We are precious to God. But we too must not go the way of these ones. The angels that were fallen, they did not keep their proper place because of pride. They wanted to, to elevate themselves. If we bring pride into our Christian walk, we will be just like them. We will fall off. That's why someone woke up one morning and decided that he was going to rewrite Amazing Grace with new lyrics that were more inclusive. I didn't want to think about it. It's pride. You know? Because the person saw that saved a wretch like me and he said, changed it. Ah, wretched, okay, me, wretch. Changed it. The person put it out. The popular musician and people who were there, yes, yeah, 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 this is the right way. Ah, okay. But that's pride. And it can come for any one of us. When God was warning Cain, what did he tell him? He said that, why, why are you sad? If you did what was right, you too will be accepted. He said, but be careful. Sin is creeping at your door, but you must be its master. Sin is creeping at your door, my brother, my sister. Sin is creeping at your door. Scripting at mine. But you must master it. You must master it. I pray that the Lord will help us in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message. The Simple Gospel Church is a church arm of World Impact Ministries dedicated to taking the gospel all over the world.